Hello, and welcome to episode number seven of Show and Tell, inspiring mini-talks at Queen Mary University of London. In this episode, we'll hear a short introduction from Sharika Alam and Rupert Danwriter from English and Drama at Queen Mary. We'll then move on to our speakers. Jorge Ramos, London-based artist, curator, producer of working in the intersection between art, technology and games. Kit Redstone, writer, director and performer. Ben Waters, writer, producer, programmer, critic and activist. Martin Melton, reader, academic teaching at QMUR in drama at Queen Mary. Kemma Bob, stand-up comedian, writer, improviser and drag king. Why not follow us at QMULSED on Twitter for details of future events and podcasts. Hi everyone, I'm Sharika Alam. I'm an MA student in postcolonial and global literatures here at Queen Mary. My research interest includes oil literatures, petrocultures and postcolonial eco-criticism. And alongside my MA, I help Rupert with show and tell. And today I'll be introducing our fabulous guest. Um, Our first speaker tonight is George Lopez-Ramos. George is a London-based artist, curator and producer working in the intersection between art, technology and games. George also works as a senior lecturer at the University of East London. So please welcome George. Thank you for having me. Hi there, everyone. It's uh, great to be here and um, we have a few kind of questions uh, to answer. So I hope this is in some way helpful. So introduction uh, to my work. So I work with someone called Persis Jaj Maravala. And Persis Jaj is the artistic director of ZU UK. I'm the executive director. We usually conceive of projects together uh, and then we go off and start uh, trying to make them exist by producing, bringing technologists, bringing collaborators uh, and anything that's needed. So whilst Jaji is writing the work that we produce, and he's usually in the fields of theatre, or performance, or technology, or games, or a bit of everything, I try to engage with our international partners and collaborators and supporters and funders and so on. It's exhausting. And that takes me to another point, an advice for anyone starting in your field. Um, I feel sorry for anyone starting the field. That's the sort of most honest answer. Is absolutely exhausting. It's completely insane to choose to enter the world of uh, independent artists or indeed to set up your own company. It's very rewarding. Uh, you absolutely can make it, but um, I think it's a bit like uh, my first the research methods teacher that looked at the room of PhD students and said, only one out of five of you will complete this PhD. So <laughs> let's start there. <laughs> it's like, okay, good, reality check. So um, yeah, just be sure that you want it. And if you want it, of course you want it, go for it. Um, but uh, as long as there's no, uh, that'll be the advice. I don't like giving advice, but now that I've been asked, so I'd say, uh, don't do it. Uh, which means you probably feel, hey, but I want to do it. So that means you should do it. Uh, but if that does, feeling doesn't come back, then just, just don't do something else. Um, which is what my dad told me, and I did it anyway. The work that we do is about bringing strangers together in playful ways. So ultimately, anything that we make, we wouldn't use this in our copy for marketing or even on our website. But that's what's driving us, is creating structures where people who wouldn't necessarily talk to each other 
or engage with each other, form temporary communities, um, which is something that we feel is getting more and more reduced by the day, uh, with our bubbles and our kind of um, you know suggested groups of interest and so on, and lack of public space. So. We tend to inhabit public space with our artworks. Uh, we tend to provide uh, artworks that we don't call artworks. We don't call them theatre. We try not to. People still call them and they need to sell tickets and so on, festivals and so on. But we try as much as we can just to provide an invitation that is less threatening to some people who go, oh, no, that's not for me. Art's not for me. Or, oh, technology's not for me. You know, like all those white people together being geeky, like, that's not for me. Or whatever it is that they're thinking, we try to deconstruct that somehow. Um, and and that, that's why we work in Newham. We work in an adult learning center where a, a diversity is just a given, you know, and kind of being economically deprived or working class is, is more than a given. It's, it's just like, if you're not, then it's slightly odd that you are there. Uh, and there's probably a question of what you're doing here. Um, so it's sort of the world we inhabit. Both Jaji and I are immigrants. Uh, both of us uh, come from very working class roots. So it, it's, it's actually odd to be in circles of privilege and, and kind of sniff around kind of those doors that are kind of require specific behaviors and they're just for the people you know or have certain names. So um, yeah, we'd, we've had to create our own circles and our own opportunities and our own um, uh, uh, what call platforms and these days we try to do that for other people a bit like in our tribe we try to create more opportunities support emerging artists who feel like they don't have a place they don't belong anywhere that would offer them a place so we create a place called gas station games and arts stratford and gas stations in Newham in the adult learning center at hamilton road happy to give you more details if you're interested and we tend to offer residencies for those who are interested in developing projects that sit somewhere in between arts, technology and games, or just sit in odd places that don't have a name and there's no venue for it or funding process for it. I think what it's just looking at right now where we're at and what we are most concerned with is trying to make our work happen, first of all, and then making it happen with integrity and ethics and without uh, taking advantage of anyone else to be able to make it happen. And if that's possible, then also trying to make it sustainable somehow. Um, you can't depend on uh, public funding uh, for, for a kind of arts career anymore. We might be a bit, little bit, but actually one of the reasons we moved into game design research is to try and see, okay, how can we scale this intimacy that we have with these extraordinary artworks and one-on-one -on -one relationships and these transformative experiences with people but actually make them more accessible and make them also scalable to a larger number of people. I have a little clip of something we made um, and also uh, we currently have a show on at the Rich Mix venue in uh, Shoreditch at the end of Brick Lane. And um, I don't know if you know Rich Mix, but there is an Indian restaurant at the bottom called Indigo, and the piece takes place there. So we decided, um, I think I'm running out of time, right? It's probably the last sentence, and then we play the video. Um, 
we decided uh, a while back to try not to call our work um, theatre or, 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 or words that would put people off. I mean, you know, if you call your work immersive, um, for example, you, you, you attract a type of people, don't you? And we try very hard not to attract that kind of people. Um, and, and, and to not do that, then you need to decide, how do you call your work? So we decided to open a dating agency. Um, we call it binaural dinner date. Um, it has binaural sounds, uh, made in partnership with Queen Mary's uh, engineers, um, which is quite nice to be back here. Um, but also, it is a dating agency. If you sign up as an individual and you tell us, match me with a stranger, we will do precisely that. Uh, and as you experience that piece of theatre, you also are inside an art and technology piece. We don't need you to know that, but you are. And you're also within the theatrical participatory experience, but we don't need you to know that. And you're also in a dating agency, which if you've come for that reason, you won't forget that, because that's all you're thinking about. Uh, but more than 10 couples have come out of the dating agency already. So hopefully we'll hear about weddings and babies soon. Um, and that's the clip I have here. terrified of dying alone as you are, turn your attention to the three dating scenarios on the table. Anita, I am really glad you are here. 
Let's see Mark and Rajesh on a first date at an art gallery. Say, sounds like you aren't very happy. Sounds like you aren't very happy. Is it me? Is it, is it me? Say no. No. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Definitely not. Definitely not. Talk to me. Talk to me. It's just I really want this to work out. It's just I really want this to work out. Okay, thank you, thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you, Rupert, thank you. Um, my question is, what's your concern um, in terms of this not being 100% natural, in terms of, uh, I don't know, finding yourself in a relationship which hasn't started in the first place in a natural way, but it's kind of linked up? Yeah. Great question. I think part of what inspired us to create this very, very artificially constructed and manipulated behavior was a response to a sickening idea that we are starting relationships from swiping photos or from um, algorithms. In fact, there is data showing that algorithms, algorithms actually changing the genetic makeup of people who are being born because they're encouraging people to come together in such a large scale. Um, and it's the fact that we don't have public space chance encounters anymore or less, and the places that we think are public are privately owned and behave as if they're public, but they have their own bylaws and the certain behaviors that are allowed and certain behaviors that aren't. We use our art to create enforced behaviors where we are absolutely upfront. This is not free-form uh, reality, but is an experience that takes you from A to B to hopefully encourage you to experience and explore what it means to be human today. Our second speaker tonight is Kit Redstone. Kit is an award-winning writer and the artistic director of Vacuum Theatre. He wrote, directed and starred in Testosterone, which won Best Theatre Show at the Pleasance Indie Award 2017, was nominated for the Peter Brook Empty Space Award and was featured as part of the British Council Showcase at the Edinburgh Fringe. So please welcome Kit. <laughs> I don't even know where that bio came from. <laughs> oh, you made it up, thanks. Um, none of this is true. Um, I've, I'm, I've written down my speech just because I've spoken before and sometimes what happens to me is I'll be speaking and I'll suddenly get sort of lost in a trance where I've forgotten what I was talking about and then sort of, you know, I don't know, sort of stammer a lot for about five minutes and as I've only got ten minutes to speak... I thought I'd be concise. So I'll try and um, look you in the eye as much as possible. So, yes, I'm a writer, director and performer of, I suppose, absurdist theatre, which is generally dark comedy. Uh, so whatever I do, if, if the brief was to make a tragedy, I, it would probably end up a dark absurdist comedy. Um, so whether I like it or not, that's, that's the kind of work I make. I often make devised work um, where I'll bring a subject matter or an idea to the rehearsal room and I'll write and, write and craft a show around that process. 
but more recently I've started working um, sort of freelance with other practitioners, performers, and I've started working in lots of different ways. Sometimes I'll write a script in the sort of traditional method um, and then bring a finished script into rehearsal. Um, I began making very meta-theatrical, experimental work, but as my work progressed and I started working with other people, um, that changed slightly. And I think initially my sort of relationship with audience was quite a kind of cruel theatre, um, and the work was always quite sort of provocative and unnerving. And I guess in recent years, my work has become slightly more palatable, which I don't know if that's good or a bad thing, but that's the way it is. So I've written a little bit about kind of where I started and where I studied and how I kind of got to where I am today. Um, I guess I wanted to be a writer from a very young age and I would tell stories to my little brothers, I would make up puppet shows and I'd spend hours creating elaborate fantasies. And at that point I didn't really know why storytelling was important but what I did know was that it immersed me completely and utterly and it made other people listen with intent. And there was something about seeing an audience or a listener captivated that made me feel incredible. And I guess it felt like a sort of magic power. And then that continued through school where I loved creative writing and acted in school productions. And my first degree was in English literature, um, which I'm really glad I studied because it gave me a knowledge of I guess, the canon of literature that I would draw from later. And then after that, I went to drama school, which was very conventional. But again, a bit like my degree, it gave me a foundation of the norm in theatre to push against um, in my later work, which was, I guess, invaluable. And finally, I did a master's in performance making at Goldsmiths, uh, which was centred around much more experimental work. And the medley of these very different approaches uh, to the arts gave me what I hope is an eclectic pot to draw from. If this is what you want to do, there is no formula to it. If you want to be an artist, a writer, a director, I guess you need to find the path that works for you. And maybe there will be time constraints and financial limitations, and that's fine. And there is funding out there and scholarships and evening classes, less than there were, but there still are, and a whole wealth of information and writing on the internet for free. Um, but the most important thing, and I guess I learned this and I continue to learn it, is push yourself, go outside of your comfort zone and allow yourself to fail. Because unfortunately what we've decided to do, um, failure is just a part of that. I mean, if you're making theatre... You, you don't really have a kind of test run. Like the first show you ever make will be in front of an audience and it's quite likely that it will be slightly crap and that's just, you know, part and parcel of the whole thing. And I guess for a long time I've realised that the ones who make it and get somewhere um, are actually, I guess it's sort of 40% talent and 60% just not giving up. And there have been many moments in my life and I'm sure many moments in most artists' life where people were telling them to give up, to find a proper career and, of course, that nagging critical voice in your own head. 
Um, and the other most important factor to getting somewhere is to learn from the failure which you're inevitably going to have. To be able to critique yourself and know when something didn't quite work. To push the boundaries of your craft and constantly challenge yourself. To dive into the unknown with all the tools that you've picked up along the way. And there is a misconception that an artist is a narcissist, but actually, and I really believe this, a true artist is someone who serves something larger than themselves, and that is the universal story they are telling. And there are loads of pitfalls, um, and of, of some of which we heard about in the last talk. Working in theatre is really, really difficult. Uh, it's massively oversaturated. There isn't enough funding to go round. You'll often have to forfeit your own free times, put your own money behind your shows. It's highly unlikely that it will ever be a particularly lucrative career. I mean, I'm 38 and I've reached the stage where I want, <laughs> where I want to start a family. And I'm starting to have to think of ways that I can bring in a more stable income. Um, and I've started trying to write uh, for TV and film because of this. And that's a whole new way of writing um, with different requirements and limitations. So I'm kind of starting from the beginning in some, res in some respects. But that risk and that excitement is part of the reason that I do what I do. And being a creative can feel very lonely. There will be projects that you'll have to produce, administrate, direct, design by yourself. There will be times that it feels impossible and you'll feel resentment. You know, why do you have to write a funding application when you don't have those skills? But like everything else in this batshit crazy career, you just have to accept that you need to learn how to do these things and find your people. Find others who share similar visions to you people who have different skills, because forging a community of people to work with is vital. It will keep you going and offer you much needed feedback, a different perspective and solutions to a problem that you thought was insurmountable. And most people will realistically have to do paid work alongside making theatre, um, at least for the beginning of your career. And then I'm going to talk about sort of the way that the world views what we do and I guess there's quite a lot of scorn aimed at artists, particularly in this country. And some people forget that it's our arts and our culture which has made us, I guess, one of the world's leading destinations for tourists, for investment. And the arts play a vital role in not only our economy, but to the core of our identities and understanding these and other identities and beliefs. And we need, I think, our government to acknowledge and support this. And if you want to be an artist, never let anyone tell you that it's not a proper job. Because to succeed, you have to be ready to endlessly pick yourself up, to field rejection constantly, to work through nights and weekends, to learn with every failure, to risk humiliation, to expose yourself, both metaphorically and sometimes literally. But to me, art is as vital as medicine, as law, as love. People respond to stories far more than they respond to facts. It took me a while to understand what I wanted to make work about, what stories I wanted to tell. And I think, at first, I wanted to be clever, you know, to make work that people thought was impressive and smart. And this meant that there was something missing, there was a heart 
beneath my work that wasn't there. And I found it hard to articulate what my stories were about and why they were important. And then I learned subsequently that if you don't know 100% why the story you want to tell is vitally important, crucial, then how the hell are the audience going to get on board with what you're doing? And I think the clue to this is to look at how art can function at its best. Because I think art is a mirror that we hold up to society. It's a way of sharing experiences so we can understand and empathise with people who are different to us. Um, it feeds our souls. It expresses the inexpressible. It saves lives. It can bring down governments. It can be protest in the right hands and propaganda in the wrong hands. And if you have that passion and drive to create, don't let anyone dissuade you. It's a really, really difficult career, but it's one that's full of joy, laughter, collaboration, playfulness and intellectual stimulation. And it's so much more than a job. It's a way of seeing the world and a way of life. To me, it's my religion. Um, my stage is a holy ground where anything can be summoned up. The impossible can be made possible. The unknowable becomes knowable. And with every new audience member, I get to share something incredible. And if this is the path that you want to choose, then I promise you that despite all the difficulties, it will be the most rewarding, inspiring and complex journey you ever embark on. And I wish you all the luck and success in the world. Tonight is Ben Walters. Ben is a writer, producer, programmer, critic and activist living in London. Uh, ben is interested in queer fun, cabaret and homemade mutant hope machines or how participatory performance practices can materialise better worlds for marginalised people. So please welcome Ben. Thank you. Um, I've also got some written notes. Um, so yeah, I'm going to talk a bit about a bunch of the weird, different, eclectic things that I've done in my work life over the last 20, 25 years. Um, and I also want to talk a bit about one of the things that sort of Rupert flagged up um, around the idea of this event, around the idea of the humanities, and why is it useful or valuable to study the humanities? Um, and having done four degrees in the humanities of different kinds. Obviously, I've, I seem to believe that because I keep doing it, and so it's been quite useful to think about why might that be. So I'm going to talk a bit about both of those things. So, yeah, so my undergraduate degree was in English, um, in, uh, and that, so I graduated from that in 1998 and then went into working as a journalist, as a trainee at a national newspaper, doing a bit of everything. Um, then I, I sort of felt like I wanted to do something a bit more chewy with my mind and kind of missed academic engagement. And so then I went and did a one-year MA in the history of film, which has always been a passion of mine. Um, and after that, I more or less went into doing film journalism and film writing full-time. So that was as a journalist for places like um, The Guardian and Time Out and Sight and Sound, and then also doing some... Uh, I wrote some books about Orson Welles and The Big Lebowski and things that I was um, passionate about. Um, I then, uh, for personal reasons of following a boyfriend, I went and did another MA in the States, in New York, 
um, in arts journalism specifically, um, which then uh, sort of opened up different kinds of areas of work and thinking. And it was really interesting being in, obviously in a lot of ways, New York is, is closer to London than lots of other parts of the world. But even so, the difference of things that I'd always taken for granted, having grown up in London as well as worked here, um, that was really, really useful and generative. And then coming back to this country, I then kind of shifted into um, being a bit more performance focused and opportunistically I was looking for work and work came along in the shape of editing the cabaret section for Time Out, which I did for about four years um, here in London. And, as, and that was part time and kind of branching out of that and the work that I'd done earlier, I also then got into... Um, starting to produce bits of, um, of performance events, which were kind of overlap of moving image culture and cabaret work. I also started making a few documentaries of my own as a filmmaker. Then Time Out cut the cabaret section, and they cut all the short, all the all the small sections that didn't pull in advertising money, basically. Um, and that was kind of devastating because I'd really got. You know, I mean, that, that position was an amazing privilege um, and hugely enjoyable, and I was gutted when that ended. Um, but the time since then, the sort of four years since then, have actually been possibly the most rewarding period of my work life in very unpredictable ways. Um, so I kind of found myself, I started uh, producing more live cabaret events um, and even performing in those sometimes not particularly well but as a you know it was very interesting seeing that other side of things um, I also started my own blog where I could just absolutely choose what I wanted to engage with and write about and then also a lot of the venues where the work that I loved was taking place started to be closed down um, so I then sort of found myself becoming a campaigner or an activist around the threat particularly to queer spaces in London and the way that that was changing the culture that I loved. And so that involved things like engaging with City Hall and the mayor's office around planning. Um, or uh, I wrote the application to Historic England that ended up making the Royal Vauxhall Tavern the first listed building in this country, which was listed because of its queer heritage as well as its architectural value. Um, and I also started doing a PhD here at Queen Mary, working with um, Ducky, who are a queer performance collective that some of you might know. Um, and that gave me an opportunity to really look into some of the kind of projects that they were doing in real depth and to engage with things over weeks and months and years and to develop these ideas, um, which I mentioned in the introduction, around how performance projects, um, I think, can really start to... Um, to change things, particularly for marginalised people. So it's been a very odd, sort of unplanned and unpredictable kind of trajectory that I've had. And I think looking back on it, um, I think it's sort of been a case of kind of expansion. So my undergraduate degree in English, as it happens, the, the kind of teaching that I had, which was excellent on its own terms, but was very much focused on kind of the word on the page and textual analysis and that kind of thing. And that, looking back, sort of segued into the kind of early film journalism, particularly that I was doing, that was, you know, geared around, OK, let's take, take a text and say something about it, more or less on its own terms. 
And then that sort of, you know, so that was a great privilege to get to write about the things that I loved. Um, and then it kind of moved out to, to trying to articulate why the things that I love matter. And then understanding more about the context of, you know, what are the forces and the structures that, that would support or hinder the things that I love and how those progress in the world. Um, thinking about, and then ultimately kind of thinking about how I can use my own abilities or position or privilege to support those things I love in a broader kind of civic aspect. Um, you know, whether that was championing cabaret as a form that tends not to get a huge amount of love or attention um, sort of in the, the broader cultural context or the work with the Vauxhall Tavern or other things like that. Um, so that's kind of been my, my sort of weird journey. Um, and in terms of the humanities itself, it's really, I found it very interesting to think about. Um, and I kind of came up with five things that I think are the humanities, I think, have given me. And I'm not saying that it's only in the humanities that these happen, but I think humanities is, is maybe the only area where this is these things are really foregrounded where these are sort of seen as the point of what this of what you're doing. And the first one of those is is critical thinking. It's just that I had um when I was doing the PhD, there's a the department here called Thinking Writing, which does PhD boot camps and things like that, which are really helpful. Um, and I I got talking to someone at one of these who was doing a PhD about critical thinking and he was sort of looking at all these different um, sort of traditions of in different disciplines and areas of life about critical thinking. I sort of was asking, well, so what is the, what's the basic underlying thing then? What is critical thinking if there's these different ways of thinking about it? And he said, well, basically it's like being a six-year-old. It's like that thing of when you're talking to a six-year-old and they ask you something and you give them an answer and they say, why? <laughs> and you have to go, well, because of, okay, why? And that kind of sense of, of trying to bring that into into one's work and one's way of being in the world, um, I think is is really important. Um, and that sense of, you know, what are the contexts, what are the, um, the contingency, it's the contingency of life and being alert to the fact that things could be different and things definitely will be different. Um, so I guess that's the second thing as well, as I think the humanities really foreground an appreciation of complexity and nuance. Um, and a recognition that actually most things in the world, if you look carefully, are really complicated. And a lot of them are really contradictory as well. And that's, I mean, well, that's fine. It is what it is. You can't get away from it. And actually, the more open we are to that and the more invested we are in trying to, uh, to understand that in the round, then again, the better positioned we are, I think, as individuals and as groups to make those interventions um, in meaningful generative ways. Um, which kind of leads on to the third thing, um, which I think is that the humanities really foreground empathy, um, which of course is really important for things, as, as Kit mentioned, you know, for sort of having a, a richer understanding for people who are different from us and people who might be relatively disadvantaged. Empathy is also really important, I think, when you're dealing with people who you disagree with or you don't like, because persuasion is a form of empathy. The ability to imagine the world through different eyes isn't just a matter of sort of love and togetherness. It's at, it can be a matter of, of helping to be a better sort of fighter for the things that you believe in. If you're able to understand where there might be common ground 
with someone who's on a different side of, of a, a given kind of tension. But even if they aren't, then empathy is what's going to help sort of outflank or move around them. Um, and I suppose that kind of comes to the fourth thing um, that I think the humanities are, are quite good at, which is um, what, what we might call thinking sideways and the ability to, to, to mobilise critical thinking, but to recognise that there are sometimes unexpected connections and unexpected kind of paths, which, I mean, for me in my, um, in my professional life, that's being quite opportunistic in not in a rapacious way, I've never made a lot of money, but in sort of spotting, oh, okay, well maybe here's an opportunity to start doing a certain kind of performance um, that there's, you know, that might not fit into what's expected or um, in terms of, you know, or, or I mean like with this PhD that I've just finished, which, is, which has been fantastic, but it was a funded PhD. I wouldn't have done it probably if it had um, involved going into the amount of debt that otherwise PhDs involve. But this came along, and I wasn't looking to do a PhD, but it came along at a time when I was looking for some work and it was a fascinating subject that I was actually quite well positioned to engage with. And so it's that ability to sort of see those different connections that I think is really helpful. And that applies in terms of subject matter as well, that a few years ago I would not have thought that I'd be spending as much time thinking about the connections between queer subjectivity and urban planning and, um, you know, the nature of no fourth wall performance, as I have been, um, but I'm very glad that I have. Um, and then I guess the final thing is, is to do with fun, um, that I think the humanities at their best are fun, should be fun to do, but also for me, um, value fun. And this is something that I've looked at a lot in, in the PhD research that I've just done. Um, that fun is something which is usually very trivialised in our culture. It's seen as um, almost by definition unimportant and inconsequential. If something is fun, then it doesn't matter. And if something matters, then it can't be fun. And that, I think, is a real kind of blockage. And there's some really interesting ways, I think, that fun is actually hugely generative as an engine of civic change and that fun can be an amazing kind of playground to try out different ways of, of thinking and feeling and being together. Um, and in some ways, the fact that it's trivialised is actually quite helpful because it means that those things can go on kind of out of sight because no one's really paying too much attention. No one really, oh, oh, if it's just fun, then it's not even worth disciplining. So you can have these interesting kinds of things that, um, that come up there. Uh, queer fun in particular being one of the best kinds but I have a thesis about that if you're curious um, so yeah and really yeah this idea that fun is, is kind of a way of um, of pleasurably rehearsing um, different worlds and I think that kind of speaks to what to me is really valuable about the, the humanities and the way that I've um, sort of engaged with those in academia and in my work life um, that it's a way of imagining better worlds and then taking concrete steps towards them. Our next speaker is Martin Welton. Martin is a reader in drama at Queen Mary, researching and teaching on a range of topics, including contemporary theatre practice, the intersection of performance and tourism, sensory culture and affect theory. Martin recently co-edited 
theatre in the dark, shadow, gloom and blackout in contemporary theatre, which has just been nominated for um, the Theatre and Performance Research Association Prize for Editing. I'm a reader in theatre and performance, which seems a bit kind of wrong-headed that I get to kind of read stuff having spoken about it previously. That, that always kind of puzzles me, which sort of says something about the odd ways that universities continue to sort of imagine that we have this shared medieval past, right? Mm-hmm. Queen Mary, trust me, is <laughs> slightly more recent than that. For show and tell, I guess I, I want to I talk about shows in the sense of theatrical shows and, and tell something about them so I guess I'm gonna I in doing that I also want to um, perhaps following on a little bit from what our other speakers have also spoken about so far which is just to kind of stress the importance of continuing to burrow away at questions and things that interest you so um, to begin with I, I want to talk about this which is nothing <laughs> right so I want to talk about the um, importance of really investigating nothing in a, in a very serious, dedicated way. Or rather, it's not nothing, nor is it just an empty void of blackness. It's actually darkness that is my interest here. Um, and I'll say a bit about where that has come from, but this has been a, a constant topic of interest for me over 20 years now, right? So since my PhD, uh, which I began in uh, 1998, and as part of that project... Um, went to see a show that one of my friends was in at Battersea Art Centre called War Music. And this took part of, um, you know, if you know anything about Battersea Art Centre, you know that it continues to be an extraordinarily inventive institution in this country in terms of both the artists it's incubated, but also some of the approaches to thinking about performance and making it that, that have happened there. And so in 1998, um, partly because they didn't have any money, they decided that they would programme a, a season called Playing in the Dark, right? which was a season of theatre with the lights turned off, not simply turned down or put out, but with all lights within their theatre spaces extinguished. So there was something quite difficult about that that they discovered, and lots of the artists discovered very quickly on, that actually sealing a space for light is incredibly difficult. right? That Even the, the glows of uh, luminescent hands and so on on a watch face will cast an extraordinary amount of light into a space after about five minutes or so. Um, but so they, they had the season called uh, Playing in the Dark, which just perhaps you might think, well, okay, that's a bit niche. Okay, interesting. It's like radio in the dark. We'll, we'll accept that. We'll move on. But actually, a number of really extraordinary things, uh, I think, have happened as a result of that. And I'll talk a bit about that in due course. But... Um, Uh, I I have kept coming back to some of these performances for a number of different reasons, and they proved informative. Um, That's not working for some reason. Okay, well, anyway, I I can continue talking about that. But so... um, It's ironically dark. It's ironically dark. Ironically, there's nothing to see. But I suppose one of the points that I'm trying to make, and something that I'm often working... Uh, with students in, in terms of thinking about this kind of work is that these, uh, the, when these kind of conditions challenge us, um, they provide new avenues for thinking. So it's, it's kind of in keeping with some of what Ben was talking about just now. But if you think the way in which we commonly talk about our th- shared theatrical experience is about going to see a show. But what happens if those amongst us who are sighted, which is probably the majority of the audience, can't see anything 
does the thing fall to bits at that point? So it seems a bit like maybe a kind of limit case, a test case, for what we might think about the kind of very limits of the art form as being. But if you think about it, there's so much more that goes on there. We're, where are our experience of, experiences of others in those kind of conditions? What happens to sound as a means of making ideas, stories, characters, uh, experiences present? Do we really see nothing in the dark, in the sense of there being nothing happen, happening visually? Or is actually the kind of ongoing nature of our visual sense, even as no light is coming into our retina, something of interest in its own right? So I would suggest that, yes, it is of interest, right? But I think that that sense of the... the the limit case, the test case for theatre, perhaps uh, explains something why, despite this seeming like a very, very niche thing in 1998, I'd suggest that the theatre's been getting darker and darker and darker ever since. Right? Partly, in some sense, because it's a kind of cheap and cheerful way of uh, cutting your budget. Who needs the set when you just turn the lights off? It's all in your imagination. right? Partly because... Uh, digital sound technologies have become much more uh, ubiquitous even, they become much cheaper to use, uh, they're available, you know, garage band, these kind of design technologies are available on your laptop, it's very easy to get to them uh, and, and make use of them. Um, and, and also I think that there's a wider cultural phenomenon here, that actually we live in, the, in a cultural milieu in which light is ubiquitous in which we're constantly looking at one another in conditions of light, but also as conditions of light. What else is a selfie but the, you know, that you look at on your phone, but the image of somebody else's face rendered as light? So we're constantly lit up. We're constantly somehow transparent because of that, or imagining that other people's thoughts and feelings are transparent. So actually getting into a condition of darkness whether others appear to us as sounds or at best as kind of shadows or, or glimpses in the gloom, actually gives us a very different opportunity to think through those kind of human relations, I think, that George was talking about a little bit at the beginning. That, that sense that actually the creative, aesthetic environment might just help us to reimagine the ways in which we, we live together in the spaces we occupy otherwise. I think this is something that remains very interesting to me. But also it opens up some interesting ideas about um, theatre history. So we might also think of perhaps the convention of theatre as being sort of you sitting in a, a normally in a theatre, not so much in a lecture theatre, but in a darkened space in the auditorium and me being the actor on the lit stage. That seems to be pretty much a kind of conventional sort of sit up, set up. Uh, a sit up? <laughs> a set up. Um, but... Um, but actually, that's very new in historical terms. We don't really get to that point till sort of the, the, the sort of third part of the 19th century, uh, when gaslighting becomes uh, broadly introduced, and then particularly electronic lights. Yeah? And we get artists like uh, Wagner in Germany, but also Henry Irving here in the UK, turning those lights off for aesthetic, aesthetic effects. So that relationship between light and dark in theatre um, is very important. Um, Wagner's become very associated with this darkened auditorium, but actually it turns out it was something of a mistake. They did intend to lower the lights, but they'd only just had the installation put in, apparently. So all the opera goers are there at the, um, the Festspielhaus in, in Bayreuth, sort of reading their programmes as the thing's about to go, and then suddenly the lights went out completely, <laughs> which was not the intention, and was a big shock. But that big shock to the senses 
somehow also lifted up the power of that production thereafter and became something that was very much talked about, but it was basically a cock-up. <laughs> right, so the, the, the history of the cock-up in the theatre, discuss. Uh, <laughs> but we, uh, I think... Pardon? So it would be a multi-volume study. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Well, uh, moving towards more successful things, I, I want to stand up the uh, thing that I was saying before, that I think the theatre is becoming very interested in darkness. Uh, some of you might have seen... Uh, there's been sort of two or three productions of Beckett's All That Fall recently, which was a play written for radio, um, where people have uh, sort of found a workaround with the Beckett estate's notoriously difficult uh, requirements for staging by blindfolding audience members uh, and playing the action around them. Uh, Tino Segal, uh, the, um, who's often associated with the visual arts, has had this uh, now uh, a piece called... Uh, this variation that's played worldwide that uh, you go into a darkened room and performers move around you singing it's actually quite a quite a beautiful piece but very disconcerting that people are moving very rapidly around you uh, in the space um, in Tim Crouch's play the author there are these sort of sustained periods of blackout uh, this was a play that was uh, on at the Royal Court I think in 2008 uh, that's sort of looking at the partly playing off the royal court's um, famous history of having these very controversial, um, uh, unsettling scenes within its dramas, and there's a very disquieting description of um, uh, of, a, of a child abuser um, in that play. But the, the the unsettling part of the play, something that none of the newspaper critics picked up, despite them saying, "Oh, this is this is very disturbing and awful," happens in complete darkness. So rather than there being something to see, you disappear into the sort of um, turgid reaches of your, fetid reaches of your own imagination, and it, it, it plays with you there. So the, I think there is something really kind of uh, creatively interesting going on there. Um, much of this, for those that are interested, can be found summarised in um, uh, Theatre in the Dark, edited by myself and Adam Alston, recently nominated for the Tapra uh, Theatre Edi Editing Award. It's fiendishly expensive, thank you. It's fiendishly expensive, um, but hopefully it may be coming out in paperback soon, um, but I'm happy to talk uh, and, and share different things in that. I think, but I just turned back to this... Um, Unfortunately, I don't have the slide, but just turn back to this, um, this moment in 1998 when um, BAC put on this playing in the dark season. I've been doing some research on this week, and I've been going round and round the houses for a while uh, with this. That in the opening week, uh, Theatre de Complicité, you know, one of our, one of our great companies, um, were on there. But there's no name of a performance that happened there. It's just, uh, I can't quite read the slide from here but um it, it basically says what why on earth would simon mcburney and one of britain's best visual theater companies make a work in total darkness come along and find out that's about the only hook in but what what seems to have happened there was that that was a scratch performance that was the beginning of what became mnemonic and mnemonic has set in train this extraordinary set of experiments with sound design uh, that led to The Encounter, Complicité's most recent show, to uh, pretty much the career of one of our best-known sound designers, Gareth Fry, who worked on that. So the quite extraordinary soundscapes of the Harry Potter show that's on in the West End. Yeah. I'm not saying that they're directly related to that, but it's quite hard to conceive of some of that work happening without this moment. And Tom Morris, 
and Complicite have both independently suggested that that might be the first scratch night at Battersea Art Centre. Right? And it's quite hard to think about British theatre over the last 20 years without that scratch process in some ways. But it happened in total darkness. <laughs> right? And I'll, I'll leave things there. Our final speaker this evening is Kima Bob. Kima is a stand-up comedian, writer, producer, improviser and drag king from Texas, now based in London. Her work centres on black cultural identity, mental health, sexuality and gender, using comedy as a tool for enlightenment and empowerment. Woo! Thank you so much. Oh man, that was my entire first and second sentence. Uh, so awkward, very messed up. <laughs> Good evening everyone. Um, I hope that you will have an easy time trusting me, um, even though I'm not a white man. Um, JK, it's 2019. How do these guys even get on the panel? Affirmative, <laughs> affirmative action. Um, hey, let's see what's about America. Hey, guys, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm so glad that you're still awake. This is very exciting. What a great day. What a great evening. Ah, okay, so this lovely person told you what I do. I do comedy stuff, I perform. So I'm a person that like writes stuff and then like performs it and like puts on shows, you know, and then somehow convinces people to leave their homes and their beds to show up and pay money. It's out of control. I don't even know how it's happening. Um, and most of my stuff is about race, sex, gender, sexual races, to gender, um, and I perform stand-up in London and around the UK, uh, and like recently just very randomly in Amsterdam, I don't know. <laughs> it was a good time, to say the least. <laughs> oh, um, and my favorite, my favorite thing that I do uh, is I put on a monthly, well now it's more than monthly, cause we're doing great, uh, showcase of uh, films of color in comedy, so it's comedians of color who identify as women, non-binary, more femme center, um, and just kind of like focusing on that. Uh, and the reason why I created that is because when you look at most comedy lineups, uh, a lot of them will feature four or five people, and it'll be uh, generally four white dudes and a woman, and maybe she's a woman of color. Ooh, <laughs> lucky, lucky me. Um, so just trying to do something to break that mold. Uh, some of the white people in here are like, is this relevant to me? It should be. If you don't think it is, you're complicit in the problem. Um, so I'm from America, which is gross. <laughs> uh, and I'm really glad to uh, not be there. It's going through a lot. It's a lot easier to witness from across an ocean. You feel me? Oh, God. Like, you guys have your own problems, but they're not my problems. <laughs> ah, so, um... My journey, I'll try to get through it in a way that doesn't sound like I'm like, um, just like, oh, listen to me and talk about me, but it's kind of the assignment. Uh, <laughs> so I'm from America, uh, uh, my education, my arts education, my first degree was in theater performance, uh, which was cool, uh, but it didn't feel like a right, like the right fit 
Okay, it was a four-year degree in year three. I was like, what am I doing? Am I going to be poor forever? Do I want to audition? I was freaking out. And it wasn't about the theater or the theater performance degree. I think it was more so I didn't believe in myself long enough to, uh, to work with it and to let the degree work with me. Uh, so after that, I moved to L.A. where I was super freaked out. I did some comedy stuff, improv comedy. Uh, which I've now been doing for like seven years, uh, which started, oddly enough, when one of my theater professors, uh, Stephen Pounders, a.k.a. Passive Aggressive Pounders, uh, <laughs> told me one day after class, uh, he like pulled me to the side. I was like, oh man, what is Stephen about to say but not really say? <laughs> and he was like, Kima, you talk so much in my class. And I was like, oh, but he was like, but you should channel it. <laughs> And to something useful, uh, he like motivated me to audition for an improv team, um, which was really the beginning of so much, um, and kind of an example of how one thing you plan kind of can just lead to other shit you did not see coming. Um, so after my theater degree, I moved to LA, uh, where I was going to do improv and figure stuff out, and just kind of ended up partying, uh, which is not what we're here to discuss and not what I wanted to do with my life uh, because I'm like half really driven and half like, what? Um, and so I was like, no, this is not okay. Uh, so I left LA and decided that the only way to get back focused was to go back to school. Um, I don't, you know, some people don't produce their own insulin. I don't produce my own discipline. Um, and so I needed to go back to school. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'll move to London, the city I've been to a couple years ago that I think is so fun. Love it. I'll move to London. I'll get a master's in television. After that, I'll work in television. It'll be amazing. One day, I'll write stuff, I'll produce it, and I'll be in it. It'll be wild. <laughs> Guys. <laughs> uh, came here. I uh, went to school. Very fun. Good time. Learned so much. Uh, graduated. Fought so hard uh, to do work experience placements, internships, etc. Uh, and nothing stuck. Like, nothing was sticking. It was so gross. And I was like, why? Um, I didn't even realize that I didn't want to be an entry-level TV person. I didn't even realize I didn't want to be a researcher. I thought that's what I had to do. I was like, no one will ever pay me to perform. I better get this admin job going. I better get behind a keyboard. <laughs> oh, but what happened was mind-blowing. I'm going to do, like, a magic trick. Whoa! It was mind-blowing. As I was putting all this effort and energy into applying for TV work, I was getting called to do, like, performance stuff, right? To go do, like, podcasts that, like, if you do, like, episode, it could pay, like, half of your rent. Like, you know what I mean? To do, like, random comedy shows and be in people's sketches and stuff. So instead of me calling all of these people, these people were calling me. And I was like, if that's not the flow, then what is it? Uh, so I leaned in that direction. School, art, etc. Uh, the main benefits for me were being surrounded by like-minded people. Uh, it's really invaluable. It's really invaluable to uh, be around people who, I don't know, have goals and then similar ones? What? <laughs> Mind-blowing. Um, and I think 
the second most important thing besides having people to uh, to work with and to bounce ideas off of was having access to like resources, right? Oh, you'll never see more free equipment than in your school's kit room, okay? Oh man, do you know how much Adobe Cloud Creative actually? Oh God, let's just say I haven't used it since I graduated. Um, amazing. So, um, let's see. Looking at notes. Okay, resources. Great. Um, so besides my TV degree getting me into this country. Thanks. Uh, nobody called the home office. JK, still legal. Boom. Um, it's taught me how to see a production from all angles. Um, so I thought I wanted to enter as a researcher who like is told what to look up and then looks it up and then passes it on. And it's just kind of like, cool, when do I get to Google again? <laughs> I thought I wanted to enter that way. Um, but now I see through doing my degree, actually, um, that I just thought that that's what I needed to do. Um, and now that I'm able to see kind of the industry from different angles, I realize that um, I'd like to develop stuff. I'd like to create stuff. I'd like to write stuff and make it happen and be in it. And that's okay to say. And also, I've learned that it's doable. Um, and I don't have to... I don't know, man. I feel like sometimes we just really get in our own way. Like, um, yeah, like I didn't believe in myself enough to let my theater degree work. Um, honestly, I didn't try it all. I didn't audition for anything. I was just like, nope, <laughs> scary, not interested. Um, but it too, even though I technically haven't used it, <laughs> I have. Um, it's helped me to like solidify the fact that I want to do entertainment things, that I want to create stuff that people watch, even if it's not on a stage um, in that way. And the reason why I moved away from theater and toured TV is because everybody has a TV. <laughs> and uh, you have to pay and leave your house to get to a theater. I'm going to the people. <laughs> Uh, okay, so, yeah, yeah, ooh, this is bold and underlined, it's important. Um, so now through my performance, <laughs> I have production companies reaching out to me to talk about writing, to talk about developing ideas, all from doing stand-up. What? I'm gonna go back down here. What? That's crazy! I didn't see, like, what? I don't know, I still can't believe what's happening. You guys, Oh. It's pretty cool. I'm not going to lie. Um, oh, yeah. I'll tell you where I got my makeup from. Uh, I was on set today as on-screen talent. I'm just saying, like, I don't know, man. I don't know. It's not always how you think it's going to go, but it'll go. You keep pushing it. Uh, yeah, so now I feel like I'm enter entering the industry. Uh, from the like place where I fit best, right? From the most advantageous position, instead of uh, literally being like, okay, the home office says that if you work in TV, you need to at least be a researcher to get a visa. Okay, and how do we pay Jeremy? That's my landlord's name. <laughs> uh, uh, so yeah, now I'm a freelancer, I do comedy, I do drag, I like host stuff. I don't know. I just try to get money from everywhere. <laughs> All legal channels. <laughs>
was a wink too much. <laughs> uh, yeah, guys, being a freelancer is super cool, right? It's like, it's really cool to like not have a boss um, until you realize that now you have to be the boss. Um, I'm not a great boss. This boss loves to wake up at noon, loves to smoke weed. <laughs> it's hard to be the boss. I'm learning a lot about myself, and I'm having to grow in ways I don't think I would if I was clocking in and only giving a crap from 9 to 5. My crap giving, it doesn't stop, baby. I give a crap on Saturday. I give a crap on Sunday. Ooh, I give a crap at midnight. I give a crap all the time. And it's great because I'm doing what I want to do, and it's for me, right? Oh, God, it's so weird. Um, I'm learning a lot about myself, and I'm learning to really, in a very real way, Oh, I'm not a huge Bible person, but let's go to it. I'm learning to uh, to really accept the things I can't change, right? And recognize what it can change. And then try to convince myself to do that. Because I'm the boss, baby! Oh, God. I'm just, Yeah, that's the thing about being a freelancer. It's so fun and awesome. But, like, you're in charge. And I, I feel like it's something, it's a skill that you build, um, pushing yourself forward, making yourself do things. I decided like six months ago I want to be a writer. Have I written? Okay. Um, yeah, so advice. I have some. I hope you guys uh, have enjoyed this uh, yelling and speaking kind of thing I've been doing. I just want to make sure you pay attention. It's so, so important. Uh, super, super important. Okay, uh, so I am, like, I'm on this side of the panel. I feel like someone was talking about 20, 25 years of experience. I'm 24, <laughs> but I do have a few pieces of advice. Uh, don't just network, okay? Don't just meet people, shake their hands for the sake of doing it, being like, oh, I do this, blah, blah, blah. Don't just network. Build a community. Build a community of people you can trust and work with, okay? Um, you'll find that by... Oh, I hate the, oh, I hate the phrase. Networking across. So gross, because it makes it seem like everything has levels. Uh, when you're always trying to meet... When you only find it important to speak to the executive producer... Um, you're missing out on all of your peers who might slide you a job they miss or something they think fits you, um, people that you can collaborate with. Community is so important, as my bros have said. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I can't even emphasize. Like, the work I did today, okay? Between, like, the work I did earlier today, all right, it's going to pay a solid chunk of my rent. Jeremy is going to love that, okay? And I got it through a friend who was making a thing and needed a person and thought of this guy. Thank you. Uh, and, the, yeah, uh, last, last little bit. This is a real one. It's so real, you guys. If I had, I would usually wear glasses. I'd take them off just to show you how real I'm about to get right now. I'm going to do it. Get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Y'all. Oh! I have a confession to make. I've been talking about Jeremy. 
how much he loves my career. He doesn't, y'all. I do pay Jeremy. I do pay him. Not always on the first. Okay. I'm so sorry. And oftentimes in two little chunks. But we have an agreement, and I'm making it work. And he's working with me. Um, and just, I'm at the beginning of my freelance journey, and I really need you guys to understand that it probably won't be smooth. Um, it definitely won't be easy. It's going to be risky. Ooh, you know, it feels so exciting. You're going to be scared. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so worth it. It's so beautiful. Um, yeah, and you'll find your way. And I'd also say uh, make sure that you... This sounds so weird. Open your umbrella. Okay. If you're just being one pole, boom, let's follow. Let's get deeper into it. If you're just being the handle, you're missing all of the other things that you can cover with your skill set. Okay. If I was just focused on being a stand-up comedian, Jeremy would have no money. <laughs> but I present things, I host things, I produce things, I put on live events. So really, I think one of the keys to making working for yourself work is to be flexible. Um, go with the flow, get used to it being weird, uh, be open. Yeah, I, I hurt my laptop, sorry, I'm so distracted and heartbroken about it. Uh, yeah, good luck. Life, life is great. Bye. Okay, hi, thanks a lot. My name's Rick. Um, ben, what are homemade mutant hug machines? <laughs> I just looked them up on Google, I couldn't really find anything. Uh, well, <laughs> no, I don't know if I should. I think... Yeah, let me ask a couple more questions. I think we copied that from your thing. We might have to keep it to just one, just for this one, but I'm sure you can grab that afterwards. Okay, cool. There you go. <laughs> uh, well, yes, uh, that's the central concept of my PhD, um, which is why you won't find it anywhere else. <laughs> um, uh, essentially, it's the idea. So it came out of me working with Ducky, who do satellites at the Royal Fossil Tavern, but they also do project working with. Um, older people at risk of isolation and with young queer performers starting to develop vocational skills and with people living with homelessness and addiction and like that um, and all these very different kinds of things but um, yeah I ended up linking them all together with this idea of homemade mutant hope machines which is the marginalized um, groups of people particularly um, ways to uh, so hope is really important to sort of get towards better worlds. And what's better than hope? Reliable, routinely generated hope. So you want a hope machine that's going to be churning out the hope on a regular basis. What's better than a hope machine? A hope machine that can adapt to different conditions and circumstances. So you want a mutant hope machine. And what's better than a mutant hope machine? Um, a mutant hope machine which emerges from the lived experience of marginalized people and operates relatively autonomously of larger structures. So you want a homemade mutant hope machine is the short answer. I can give you about 100,000 other words. Yeah, because I'm going to Google. Uh, the second thing was cosplay. Oh, that's interesting. Anyone else got a kind of incomprehensible? <laughs> Anyone got a quick, um, another quick question, or do you want to carry on? 
If anyone else has a question, I just want to give as many people a chance yeah, sure. as possible. Anyone? No, we'll keep going. I did. No, I just wanted to ask Ben about how to access. Oh, alright. I just wanted to ask Ben about how to access the queer fund. Your queer fund, pieces. Um. Well, so it's the same. That's so. Uh, fun is a really important aspect of homemade music. Uh, well, yeah, watch this space basically. So it's just being handed in, um, but it's not published. It's not published. Okay, cool. At the end of the book was which is when you were talking about your um, performances. When's the next one? Where is it? <laughs> we weren't told we could plug. It's like and a really slow radio. Yeah, yeah, I'm into it. I like Where's the mic? And my favorite thing to put on, and the thing that I'm most uh, enthusiastic to invite people to, because I think it's a good fucking show, um, is Fuck It Up. It's the Films of Color, so F O C It Up Comedy Club. Um, and we happen, we exist on Facebook, but we happen every second Wednesday at the Phoenix Artists Club uh, by Town and Court Road. Um, and it's just a cool show. I host it and I bring four really funny people um, that can hold their own shows and we stick, each, stick ourselves together and yeah, we make good fun. Yeah, thank you for asking. That was really nice. I'm going to cry now. <laughs> Have you ever performed the Coco Butter? Oh yeah, that's my flatmate actually. Stacey uh, is my flatmate and a huge uh, part of my creative process is being able to bounce off of someone that awesome without getting dressed. Thank you. Kima? Hello. You said you would have done the research in some other far away possibility. Uh, what would your research has been in. Gotcha. Um, yeah, so what I was looking to do was to become a, a television researcher. Uh, so how I think it goes is like a runner who's like the coffee person, and then the researcher who's like the information coffee person. <laughs> Someone's like, give me some stats, and then you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then you're like, an assistant, assistant, something, I don't know. But moral of the story is, I was just going to be looking up whatever people wanted, mostly for BBC4 content. No shade, but I'm not over 65. <laughs> wow. I think that was really and interesting thank you so much. I want to thank everyone. So, um, Kit and Martin and Kima as well at the end. Um, we're really happy to have them. And, uh, yeah, thank you to them for giving up their evening. Thank you so much.